working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everybody, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today, my guest is drummer Pat Torpy. Pat is best known as the drummer for Mr. Big. Since the first record in 1989, Pat proved that he was more than an equal member of this group of powerhouse players that include Eric Martin on vocals, Paul Gilbert on guitar, and Billy Sheehan on bass. Early in his career, after his move to Los Angeles, he easily found work with great artists like John Parr, Belinda Carlisle, and in 1987, he joined The Knack before his time with Mr. Big. He also toured with Robert Plant on his Now and Zen tour. In 2014, Pat was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. In this episode, we talk about how the band has rallied behind him as he fights this disease and the sharing of drum duties live and in the studio with drummer Matt Starr. On December 4th in Nashville, the Nashville Drummer Jam will honor Pat Torpy. And along with Pat Torpy as one of the special guests to be here in Nashville, we're also expecting Billy Sheehan on bass. That's December 4th at the Cannery Ballroom here in Nashville, Tennessee. To find out more about this episode and all the episodes that we've done, you can go to workingdrummer.net. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Leave a rating and review. This always helps us grow. If you like what we're doing here at Working Drummer Podcast and you want to help sustain this ongoing project, there's a way that you can help, and there are many progressive rewards for those of you who can help. I'm talking about free Skype lessons from pro drummers like Ben Caesar and Carter McLean, a free Working Drummer t-shirt, access to bonus content, shout-outs, Twitter follows, and even a personal feature on you within an episode. Check out all the details at patreon.com slash working drummer. I'd like to introduce you all to Crush Drums by telling you about one of their new lines. They are offering a brand new birch kit called the Sublime Birch Series. The Sublime Birch is 100% North American birch. Here's Crush's own Terry Platt talking about some of the cool features of the Sublime Birch Series. One thing that Crush has always done is on our 14-inch floor toms, we do a 14 by 13. It's got the fullness and depth of a 14 by 14 tom, but you can also, tuning range-wise, manipulate it to sound more like a 14 by 12 for the guys that, that enjoy that tone as well. It also includes the hoop saver claws that we developed where we actually have the rubber grommet under the claw protruding through the front of the claw. So if somebody grabs their drum set and sets it down, say, on concrete, you know, claw side down, it doesn't scratch up everything. And here's one of my favorite things about what Crush is doing. The bearing edges are cut a little more specifically for the drums. Our standard edge is a, you know, kind of a double 45, and the outside is rounded over so you get some more head contact with the shell. On the bass drum, you'll notice that the resonant side is even rounder than that. And then the uh, batter side's going to be a little bit sharper. Just so you get that nice snap out of the kick, but the resonant head really brings the whole shell into the equation of the tone. You can also find a link to the new Sublime Birch series in our show notes and see the beautiful finishes and configurations they offer. In the near future, we've got much more to share in regard to Crush Drums and this dynamic company. For now, check out Crush Drums at crushdrum.com. So here is my conversation with Pat Torpy. Most of the summer, we've been on and off tour. We, In the springtime of this year, we did some shows in America, traveling around. That's when we ended up playing Nashville as well. And then we um, 
took a short break and went to South America and did some shows down there. Came back, had a short break, and then we went to Southeast Asia, Japan. And we got back about a week ago, and now we're about to head to Europe. We're leaving tomorrow for Germany, and we're going to be playing around Europe. We, we've been pretty busy. I mean, it seems like that. I, you know, it's kind of like, you know, we, we, we'll go out for a month, and it's this flurry of activity. Then we'll take a week off, and it's like, ah, oh, pretty compressed. And then now we're going to start it up again tomorrow. So that's kind of what's been going on. Yeah. In support of a new of a new collection of songs called Defying Gravity, we, we released in, I think, March of April or March okay. or April of this year. Right, right. So it's, it's, it's been, been good. All the different um, places around the world that that you tour, uh, especially like in Asia and maybe uh, some places that not a lot of uh, maybe a lot, not a lot of us have experienced quite yet. Um, do you notice uh, has there been a change over the years as far as the availability of of gear and backline and 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 just technology has it? What, what I've noticed, when we first went to Japan, which was in 1989, technically the, you know, the, the production and all the equipment and everything was top-notch. But then we would go to Indonesia, and it would be like put together with gaffer tape and bubblegum. <laughs> and uh, now it definitely has changed. It's, it's improved. It's much better. You, you're, it's a much better experience. I mean, Japan is still the top notch as far as, you know, any of that, you know, PA and, uh, backline and amps and production, but everybody, everywhere else has seemed to catch up quite a bit. Yeah. Cause I, I do remember the first time we went to Korea, went to Seoul, it was pretty hit and miss. And now it's as, as technically proficient as Japan. They've really stepped it up. They've really gotten it together. So if anything, it's gotten better. Yeah. Um, about five years ago, five six years ago, we went to India, and now that was a that was a challenge. There was you know there was some definitely challenges to putting on a show and technically making everything work. But uh, that was five years ago, so maybe they've got it together. But right, right. Most of the places we go, it's it's a it's a pleasure and pretty pretty easy. They make it easy for us to do a show, so it's it's definitely improved. Yeah. A- anything in particular when you were in India that you remember that was just like, wow, this I'd never seen this before? Well, <laughs> it was always a challenge to get the PA to work and, <laughs> and the lights. What? And I mean, specifically, you know, and the, the, and the, the drum kit that I end up with is, was kind of like, you know, okay. Uh, you know, the drum heads were kind of together and you know but we made it work i mean that's kind of a true test kind of separates the men from the boys you know it's like yeah sometimes you just gotta put your head down and plow through and make it work and because people come and they expect to see us so right and um, and they're not they're not thinking about what you're dealing with up there they just want to be entertained no if you let it bog you down then it, it it it's reflective on stage yeah, no, there's no doubt. And, and like you said, people, they come to see Mr. Big. They don't know, they don't care if your monitors aren't working or <laughs> or your, you know, your snare drum is, is about to pop or, you know, whatever. You just got to make sure it works, you know. 
Or there's a tabla head on the on the first rack tom or something like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My introduction to Mr. Big was around 92, 93, um, mm-hmm. on Rush's Presto Tour. Um, okay. I saw you guys opening up for them at uh, Clipper Stadium, uh, a minor league stadium in Columbus, Ohio. Um, I remember that venue. Uh, it was it was an add-on show because the the tour had sold out and they added on the show and I think it was the second time I saw them that year and uh, I remember Paul came out with with a cordless drill and he had something like uh, picks attached to it and was yeah. playing guitar and and it just and it and the the bit flew off you know he was in the middle of soloing or something and it was, oh it did <laughs> yeah it's <laughs> like what is going on um. But so I'm about halfway back, getting my head just ready to get my kneel on, you know. And you came out, and f- I mean, I was again halfway back in this in this uh, in this venue. But I could see you so clearly, and the fluidity in which you made your way around. You had two bass drums on this on this tour. I'm almost positive. Again, this was a long time ago. But yeah, that's that's probably. I was. I, I went to one eventually. Back yeah. to one, but I was mm-hmm. using two in the beginning. Yeah. I I felt like I was like. What is going on here, man? I'm hearing so much sound. I'm seeing so much, and and it's like there's there was a again there was a fluidity in the way you were moving around this huge kit, and I'm like this guy is amazing. And then, well, thank you, sir. That's nice of you to say. <laughs> it, it was, you, dude. You were you were just you were just you just blew me blew me away. And then I I thought to myself, oh no, I'm cheating on Neil by really liking this opening. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I was—I mean, I grew up. I was um, people that know me. I was just such a huge Rush fan, and I'd seen so many different great opening acts, you know, throughout the years uh, with them. But I was like, oh my gosh, this is this is insane. Um, so, but anyways, that's that's my story of that. Uh, what were those early days like? Well, what I was going to tell you is I remember about the venue. I'm a, I'm a baseball fan. Getty Lee and I are baseball fans. And it was an artificial turf field. Yeah. And we some somebody had a bat and a ball, and I I always I think I I had my mitt with me, wow. and we were hitting some balls around. It. And I I'd never experienced an artificial turf field, and I, the ball just gets to you so quickly, it's just like sprung, it's like shot out of a cannon. Yeah, and it just the hops are so true, but they're quick and fast, and because I I I was an infielder, and that's what I remember about that gig. That's why I remember that infield. But uh, just wanted to make that comment about that. That's funny. so. <laughs> what and what was what was the original? What was the original? Just question? kind of the I, you, I was, you were saying this was the early day, earlier days. Uh, I know the first record came out in '89, so this was a few years afterwards. But I mean, you know, still, um, uh, I mean that. What a great! Uh, I know you did many t- different tours, but for early in a band's career to be 
you know, doing an opening slot on a major tour. It's still um, just kind of wondering kind of what those early days were like and getting started or somebody, you know, having a group of players with Paul Gilbert, Billy Sheehan, you know, kind of established players. Was it already, did that band kind of already, was it a rocket to begin with? It was in in a sense, and then not. It, it was like um, when we first got together, you know, some people were throwing around the, the cursed comment about a super group, and it's like... <laughs> Oh come on, you know we're not. I mean, I I was I was pretty much an unknown, and Eric had done a couple things, but it was kind of uncomfortable because we were we were just trying to be a good band and yeah. come up with good songs and get on a tour and do all the stuff that you do when you're in a band. But to do this tour, we had we had it, it was kind of like the first couple years like we got together in, in the end of 88 and our first record came out in 89. And then, so by 92, we'd done, you know, we'd done a couple tours. We toured with winger and a couple did a thing with white lion. And, but then we got this rush tour and that was a big deal. But now we're looking back on it. It all seems so compressed, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. it just seems like we were in this whirlwind at the, at the time doing all this stuff. And, you know, it was all about the band and all about, you know, recording and our next gig and we're doing a video and it's, it just seems like a compressed activity that all was happening. And being on tour with Rush, I mean, I, I'm, I have to be perfectly honest. I was, I was a Rush fan, but not a fanatic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know, I, I didn't even own a Rush album. Yeah. And I think I come from a little bit like a, the generation before that, I was more into the John Bonham, right. uh, Mitch Mitchell, Clyde Bunker from Jethro Tull. These, you know, they, they're a little bit more of a the generation before Rush. Rush came kind of after that, right? So <clears throat> I was a fan of them, but <clears throat> I, there was they weren't like one of my super favorite bands. Sure, but then when we got on tour with them. And I saw them every night. I became a huge fan because I saw how great they were and how consistent and how how all the material and how fun it was just to watch them play and how consistent Neil was and how, you know, every night he, he was perfect and just played everything fantastic. So it was a really, really great time to to be in a band and be doing what we were doing. I mean, I... I, I, I cherish those memories of being on tour with them and being able to hang out and talk to Neil. And I, and I used to think to myself, there are, there are a million guys out there that wish they could be <laughs> in my shoes right now <laughs> around talking to Neil Pierce. Yeah. And, and it was a really open door policy with them in backstage. I mean, I could, I could walk into their dressing room anytime and say, Hey, what's going on? You know? And they wow. were, they were just, it was, it was a fantastic time. And like I said, it's, I just cherish those memories. family used to go to these these Sunday family picnics of just a bunch of friends and that early 60s mid 60s kind of vibe you know where everybody the families would get together and have picnics and the dads would all drink beer and all the wives would you know congregate and serve food and do that whole thing mm-hmm. and um, 
they had a polka band sometimes, and I just saw this polka band, and I was just kind of fascinated with the drums. I just, I was able to sit on a railing behind the drummer and kind of look down and behind him and watch him move and watch what he was doing, and it just kind of caught my eye. And from then on, I just, you know, I thought, wow, that's what I want to do. I want to play the drums. So I was probably about eight or nine. Wow. And, uh, I never, I never veered off that path. Uh, and, and then uh, I know you got involved in, in school things. And uh, Did you have a private teacher at all? No, I never had any private teaching. Well, I have to qualify that remark, which I'll explain in a minute. Um, but when my, my mother got me a, a set of drums when I was 13 years old, and I had a snare and a practice pad and all that stuff, but when I finally got a when she said she was going to buy me a, a used kit, she said, but I want you to take band in school. I was just entering high school. So I, I got involved with the, you know, orchestra and marching band. And, and what I ended up doing is I, I thought, you know, I'm really going to dive in. So I played drums in every musical situation that was available. Stage band, orchestra, marching, um, orchestra, which I already said, which, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the violins. And I also played for the choir because they had, you know, they had like musical, uh, musicals and, and productions and, you know, how high schools put on plays and right, stuff. Right, I was right. in the orchestra pit with that. So I was kind of really just jumped in and tried to get involved in every everything I could. And uh, they had a stage band, which was, they had one drummer and, and it was a guy, his name was Jim Morehouse. He was a senior and I was a freshman. He he was really good. At least I thought he was but at the time. I was like, "Wow, this guy's really good," you know. Mm-hmm. And he played in the stage band, so he graduated, and then I ended up auditioning for that and becoming the when I was a sophomore, becoming the drummer for the stage band. So I was um, involved in that, but it wasn't. It, it was more, you know, you you have a music teacher, but it's not like you're sitting down with a guy, individual one on one. Right. It's just basically. You know, they teach you, you learn how to read music and you play your part. But later on, what I was going to say earlier when I when you asked me the question, I did take a couple of private lessons with a guy named Chuck Silverman. I don't know if you remember that name. I do know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was he was kind of a specialist in Latin and Cuban, Afro-Cuban mm. drumming. And, and, yeah. and this was after Mr. Big. I actually did a Zildjian Day in L.A. performance with a bunch of other drummers and he was one of the drummers there and I, and he was really great. And yeah. I, and I went up and started talking to him and he, he said, Oh, I, I teach if you want to get together, you know, um, cause he was doing some things, Latin things that I kind of could imitate, but I wanted to get a little deeper into the essentials and mm-hmm. find out exactly what, you know, songo and, and different grooves and what's important, 3-2 clave and all that stuff, because I, I was a rock guy. I didn't quite understand. I could imitate things, but I wanted to know more. Yeah. So he and I got together about three or four times and just to kind of tune me up on what what was what. And he's he's a great guy. He passed away, actually, a couple of years ago. Right, I remember that. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. He's a great guy. We had a we had a really good time, and so so that's my extent of private lesson. It, it's so funny you bring that up. I, I was um, 
watching some solos and stuff the last few days, uh, digging into more stuff uh, that you've been that's on YouTube and stuff like that. And um, mm-hmm. there's some six eight Afro Cuban things that you're doing, and uh, you can hear some clave stuff. You're incorporating cowbell patterns and casquera and things like that. And, and uh, so it's interesting that you bring that up because I was like, man, I'm hearing I'm hearing this this flavor, this Latin stuff that you're bringing into this this you know just slam and rock drum solo um <laughs> i have some old chuck silverman books with cassette tapes you know that i used to practice along with and one of the things i loved about what chuck did is he provided these um you know with cassette back in the cassette day tape days is uh play along loops that you could solo over so here's the songo thing this three two whatever and 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 you know you can play this groove now solo over what's happening. And, and that was just a really, that was a really helpful thing at the time. Uh, yeah. It, it kind of does. He was great. Yeah. Really, really great. I mean, you know, I was, I, I heard, I, I heard Songo, you know, grooved and, you know, with the cowbell and I thought it just has everything. It's just got a lot yeah. going on and yeah. it just really, really, really piqued my curiosity. And then, I would try to imitate it, I and mean, then something wasn't just quite right. And then once I got with Chuck, and he kind of showed me, you know, a little deeper what it was going on. I was like, oh, okay, now I got it. And then I remember I I was really into it, like using it at sound checks. You know, it's like yeah, just kind of going off and using it because <laughs> I could always turn some heads. You know, <laughs> yeah. I actually had Neil Peart come up and go, "What what is it you're doing?" You know, because he's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's not one of his expertise areas and right. and uh we were talking about it you know neil neil's a really humble guy i mean he's mm-hmm. he's uh he's always telling me how he was always telling me how uncomfortable he was about all these greatest drummer you know awards and he's like all i ever think about is what when i make a mistake and i'm like oh god oh mr greatest drummer you know yeah just really self self uh self aware that you know he's he's just a he's just a humble really nice guy yeah that that seems to be a, a pretty consistent thing uh, i'm sure living in a town like la you you meet so many wonderful musicians and uh that you've met and played with and and they just the most it, there seems to be a parallel between this kind of down-to-earth vibe and I picked that up early on when I first moved to Nashville and the level of talent and the level of musicianship that goes hand in hand with that. Um, yeah, I, I think so. Especially if you're going to be successful because it's, it's, you know, if you're, if you're kind of a jerk, mm-hmm. you might be really talented, but nobody wants to be around you. It doesn't matter how talented <laughs> you are. If you're a jerk, you know, there are exceptions to that rule, but pretty much. Yeah. Yeah guys that are you know got it together they got it together in more ways than just the music part of it very well said yeah they've got it together more than more than one way um at this time when you're in high school and doing this uh i got two questions for you were you singing at the time and uh also who who were you listening to well i was i was singing but not singing I, I really wasn't in any, any band i got i got in a band when i was a sophomore with a couple of senior guys and but we never really did a gig we just kind of would rehearse and 
And I, I wasn't singing at the time, but I wanted to sing. In other words, I was singing in the shower. I was singing <laughs> by myself in yeah. my room, you know, right. singing along with Beatles records and Stones and Hendrix. And, um, and at the time, you know, I, I remember I would sing, and once in a while my little sister would hear me singing, and she would go, don't sing, you sound terrible. And I was like, oh, God, you know, <laughs> the typical siblings, you know. That sounds like my sister. So, <laughs> yeah, really encouraging. And But uh, I, I just, you know, I, I just kept at it. I always was, I was like a closet lead singer. I always wanted to be Paul McCartney, you know, it's like. It's just uh, amazing to be able to sing and play at the same time. And I had a guy mention it to me. I, I, I think well, by the time I was a senior, I was doing some, once in a while, doing a dance gig or like a, a wedding or something with some guys. I can't even remember the name of the band. That's so funny. But um, uh, somebody said to me, asked me, do you sing background vocals? And I said, well, no, not, I mean, I can try. And he goes, well, let me tell you, if you do, you, you should try to do that because if, if you're going for a gig and you sing backgrounds and another guy doesn't, you might get the gig just because you can sing backgrounds. Right, right. And I thought, yeah, that makes sense. So, <clears throat> and then did you ask me about what I was listening to? And yeah, yeah, like what drummers show? or what bands? Uh, and you kind of mentioned a few. Well, but. I was really into uh, Mitch Mitchell, Jimi Hendrix, Led Zeppelin. Jethro Tull, um, but I was a sponge. I listened to everything. I mean, I listened to everything. Mm -hmm. if, I, if it, you know, it's it's, and I and I was a fan of 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 songs of pop music and, you know, just uh, listen to the radio and radios were a lot more free in what they played on the on the radio at the time. So, mm -hmm. um. But I, but I really, you know, I was really a Led Zeppelin nut for a long time. I sure. I got into that really heavy, and but also Mitch Mitchell. I, I there was a kind of a jazzy feel, looser feel with Mitch Mitchell that I really loved, thought was great. And I and I went to see a lot of shows. I saw Led Zeppelin twice. Wow! And I saw the Who, and you know, I just really. You know, anytime I was living in Phoenix at the time, that's where my family moved out when I was twelve. Okay, to Phoenix, and um, anytime there was a, you know, I'd always looking in the paper to see if there were concerts coming, and you know, it, it wasn't. It was a, a little bit easier to get into a show. It seemed to be because I remember once I got to L.A., it was like shows would sell out so quickly, it was ridiculous. But um, it was just a, I just always was able to get in and see these shows. I saw a lot of different bands that i mean i saw the doors you know like original wow. doors yeah so I, I i was always hanging out just trying to soak myself in the whole culture of rock and roll so yeah I, that's what i wanted to do man that's amazing uh mitch mitchell comes up quite often you know just this pivotal player uh you know kind of bridging the divide between jazz and rock um, kind of, yeah. As so many drummers in that that decade, you know, brought their influences into this new, almost like a new newer genre that you know we kind of take for granted now. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, it's it's rock and roll, 
you know. Yeah. But exactly. you know, there was that time when you know who do you know who who do we listen to? And you know, you're 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 talking about who we've listened to, but uh, who was who was guys like Mitch Mitchell listening to? Who who these guys? You know, that not too many rock drummers to pull from uh, when those guys were coming up. And so just creating. Yeah, and, and I think I remember him talking about being into Elvin Jones yep. and Buddy Rich. And mm-hmm. and I was listening to that stuff too. In fact, I, I saw Buddy Rich probably 16, 17 times Holy in cow. my life. Because I, you know, he was always. And he would play like Phoenix College, you know, they play these college auditoriums. And I don't know. I, I mean, look back now, I can't recall exactly how I pulled it off, but I, I seem to always be finding a way to get into the CD shows. And and uh, it was really, really great because some of the shows, it was pretty loose. So I remember sitting on the floor of an auditorium, like and Buddy Rich's bass drum was like six feet in front of my nose. Oh, my gosh. And uh, just sitting there being that close to watching him. Mean, it was a power. It was a, you know, it was a force to be reckoned with, Buddy Rich. So yeah. Um, yeah. I, was, I was really into that stuff, too. But I think Mitch Mitchell brought that, you know, you talked about Elvin Jones, which is kind of has a, I mean, Elvin had that free, kind of a free approach to the way you hit the, you know, approach the drums and played. And I think Mitch Mitchell, that's, that's, that's how I got into actually checking out Elvin Jones because he talked about it in right. the interview. And I met him once at SIR in Hollywood. Um, I, yeah. Uh, in the SIR Hollywood, it's it's kind of a austere little rehearsal space that everybody's heard of SIR, mm-hmm. but it only has the bathroom. It's just one one stall, one door <laughs> bathroom, and and I remember I was waiting because someone was in there. Yeah, and the door opens up, and this little guy comes flying out of there, and I was like, Hey, what? Hey, wait a minute! You're the you're the you're the guy. You're Mitch Mitchell. <laughs> <laughs> and he looked at me like, yeah, yeah. And, and, and I was kind of towering over him because he's a pretty little guy. Yeah. And I said, well, I don't mean to react, but I mean, I'm just, you know, the inspiration, those first three Hendrix records, I know them by heart. You know, I, I learned every little nuance and move you did. And, you know, he was just kind of, I think he was just kind of looked at me, well, kind of wide-eyed, like, who's this crazy kid from <laughs> Hollywood, you know, going to cost me here? Yeah, so I was able to meet him once, and then I—I I don't even know what he was doing. I can't recall, but he was in there rehearsing with somebody. I—I I think uh, with the different clinics that I've been to, and 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 working retail for seven years, uh, a long time ago, at a couple different drum stores, I met many different drummers, and I had a chance to meet Mitch once, and I have to say, it was probably the most starstruck I ever was with with drummers. I was too. Yeah, you know, I mean, he like he was hanging out with Jimi Hendrix. I mean, Jimi yeah. Hendrix, geez whiz, that's uh, that's like one step away from the hand of God, you know, as far as I'm concerned. So, in '83, you moved to Los Angeles. So, you were you in Phoenix, and because uh, one of the questions I had is why why LA, um, but was it because it was close, and what was the draw there? Yeah, I think it was the geography. I mean, I I was playing around Phoenix in a cover band, and we started trying. You know, I realized this was not the means. This was a means to an end, and that was the end of my music career if I stayed there. Mm-hmm. So um, we were. You know, it was just a typ- typical situation where 
you know, we tried to write original songs, but nobody really knew what they were doing and they weren't that good. And eventually we just kind of broke up and I just thought, I don't, I don't want to put together another cover band. I'm a, I'm going to jump in and see if I can go out to LA. And I had a girlfriend at the time and she was trying to be an actress. So she was into moving out. So we came out together and kicked around and that was the beginning of it. And then I've, I've been here ever since. So been here a long time. Okay, since that time. Um, tell me about uh, some of the things that led to some of the bigger tours that you had. Um, and you said, uh, and there was a, a bio I was reading, and it said you were a regular on American Bandstand, Solid Gold. I remember watching these. So were you part of the house band? Yes. Well, they didn't really have a house band. What mm-hmm. ended up happening, uh, I was playing, I, I knew this guy, his name was Nick. I can't even remember his last name, but somehow he worked at Atlantic Records. And he, through friends, uh, the, I played softball with these bunch of musician guys. And there's a bass player named Ricky Phillips. He plays with sticks now. He's, he was in Bad English, and he played with the babies way, in, way back in the 80s. Oh, wow. Cool. And he and I got to be good friends, and he knew this Nick guy. And what ended up happening is John Parr, the guy that did not uh, naughty naughty Saint Elmo's Fire, right, right, you know, way back. He came into town to do bandstand, and he didn't have a band, so they needed a band to be to lip sync from behind him. Okay. <laughs> so Nick, who worked with Atlantic Records somehow, called Rick Phillips, and Rick called me, and and then we called a keyboard player and a guitar player, and we ended up going on this bandstand. Well, they they were grateful that we were able to put put it together quick and bail them out. So what ended up happening is they called us again, you know, for like a couple other artists, uh, Melissa Manchester and uh, Marilyn Martin, Benny King, Bob Geldof. You know, they started yeah. calling us to so they so I would you know one 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 show I'd put my hair in a ponytail, and next show I'd let it. Not in a ponytail because they, they were saying you guys got to look different because they don't want us to look like the same band. <laughs> so it wasn't like a house band; it was just kind of like a networking thing that ended up being a real godsend because at the time I was just kind of living in an apartment in Van Nuys, California, and on a shoestring and doing these shows really paid well enough to kind of float me for a month or two, and so. It ended up being really great. And, and I was also networking. You know, you meet a lot of different people, right. a lot of other acts come in and out. And so it was really beneficial. In 85, you went out on tour with John Parr? Yeah. Well, when, what ended up happening is um, he, he had a hit song called Naughty Naughty, and that was the first time I met him. He mm-hmm. came, we did the bandstand together, and we that was the first initial bandstand that I played on with this guy. Yeah. And then he went away, and then we did some other things and did some other television or whatever. Then John Park came back into town, but he had this number one monster hit called St. Elmo's Fire from the movie St. Right. Elmo's Fire. Right. And it was number one single. So they called us again to do a bandstand. And his manager, I can't remember his name. His name is John, but I can't remember his last name. He, he actually used to work with The Who. His name was, his nickname was Wiggy. That's another story. But anyway, <laughs> uh, he's, he's got a 
uh, he, he was an amazing guy. He had all these Keith Moon stories. Um, they told me after we taped the show, we're holding auditions for we're going to go on tour, opening for Tina Turner. Wow! And his manager asked me, he goes, uh, "Do you want to come an audition?" Place called Leeds in uh, North Hollywood. And I said, "Yeah." So I I went down and auditioned uh, that afternoon. And uh, they called me that evening and asked me if I wanted the wanted the gig. So that's how we ended up going on tour with Tina Turner. That's was this like and the first was, major tour you had done? <clears throat> yeah, this was the first arena tour that I was ever on. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, Tina Turner had a huge. Her album "Private Dancer" was huge, and yeah. so it was all sold out arenas in the United States. So it was pretty cool. Wow. And uh, I was uh, I was blown away. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I thought, oh, I made it. I've I've got it now. I'm I'm my I'm ready to fly. You know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I thought uh, I'd I'd really hit the big time. And uh, and in a way, it was. I mean, in a way, it wasn't. But it, in a way, it was. All of a sudden, I was on this arena tour playing with a guy that had a number one single, so we could kind of had you know, had some good crowds and people actually knew the song. And so right. that was great. Yeah. And then after that, he, we got off tour with Tina Turner and we continued and they put us on a, sh- on a show, uh, opening for heart up in new, new England area for about, I don't know, maybe two and a half, three weeks. So all of a sudden I was on, you know, tour with heart who I love, you know, I yeah. can believe it every night watching them play. And Denny Carmassi was was playing drums at the time for him, and so that that was that was really cool. And then that ended, and then John went back to England, and all of a sudden I was back in my apartment doing solid gold American bandstand okay. again, <laughs> <laughs> and you know just kind of kicking around trying to get something going. I was going to say, you know, I mean, you you had that point when you're like, man, I've made it, I've done it, you know, and you and you're there, but you know, the songs don't stay number one forever, and tours come to an end. And did you start working with Belinda Carlisle shortly after that, or? Yeah, that was that was the end of '85, beginning of '86, and John Parr did one more show. We went over to England and did a show at the Hippodrome. Uh, place in in London, and it was a it was a live uh, satellite broadcast or something. You know, some something was going on. But I, I just went and played. But there was uh, it was the cult was on the bill and wow. Midjour from Ultravox, and okay. uh, so that was kind of interesting. But then we went came back. Um, Came back home and it was a, it was the springtime of '86 and we heard that Belinda Carlisle was doing a tour, and I, I once again my buddy Rick Phillips, the bass player, he heard about it and so they, he heard that they were auditioning, uh, they wanted you know like a they're auditioning everybody guitar, bass, drums, mm-hmm. keyboard, so we put a band together to go down and audition as a band, uh, Rick and I and Tim Pierce who ended up. He's a big studio musician out here in L.A., guitar player guy. He was uh, Rick Springfield's guy for a long time. Okay. Great player. And uh, this keyboard player player friend of ours, and we went down and auditioned as a band because they were doing it, uh, like trying to do it uh, individually, which was nuts. I don't know why they would try to do that. 
And uh, Belinda and Charlotte Caffey were in there with some management. So it was at SIR in Hollywood. So we went in and started playing Vacation or We Got the Beat or one of those songs or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they stopped us and said, okay, we, we, you guys, we like you. We want you to do it. Really? That, that was it. That was, <laughs> they just stopped the auditions right on. Because they just wanted it to be easy. And all of a sudden they saw, hey, we got a band here. Yeah. We don't need to like go through all the crap. So let's just let's just move. Which was which was great. It was great for us, and so that's a good idea, um, man. Find these buddies that you yeah. you know you work well together. You want to spend time with on the road. Hey, they're audition. You know what? We've got a band. We're going to do this. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? I, I actually just spaced on the the keyboard player who was the most important part of this story. It was Brett Tuggle, this guy named Brett Tuggle, and he became through him is how I ended up in Mr. Big a couple years later because okay. of Brett. And uh, so we went on tour opening for Robert Palmer and doing a bunch of, you know, our own shows as well, different single shot, you know, one off gigs and so on and so forth. And then that ended and then I was kicking around L.A. again. Yeah. And uh, and then uh, that's when I got in, started playing with the Knack guys. Yeah. Yeah. Played with them for, for a while. And that kind of came about is because I I played a television show lip syncing for Roger Daltrey. Oh wow! And Bobby Columbi, who was the drummer from Blood, Sweat, and Tears, was one of the production people on this television show that I did. And he came up to me after I did the lip sync performance with Roger Daltrey and he came up and asked me, he introduced himself and I said, wow, you're Bobby Columbia. And he said, yeah. I said, man, I'm a big fan. That's a, it's amazing. And he goes, yeah, well, I, I thought you looked good back there. You, you, I, I you look like you can play. So, mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm working with the knack and they just fired their drummer and we're doing some soundtrack recording for this movie. And would you be interested in subbing and coming in and doing it? And I said, yeah. So he gave me his number and, one thing led to another. I ended up going and recording with the Knack, and then they asked me if I would be interested in doing some shows with them. And they were great guys. They were really good. And at the time, there was this kind of like Motley Crue hair metal thing going on in L.A., and mm-hmm. that kind of wasn't me. It wasn't my thing, you know? Yeah. So I, I was just kind of a regular guy, um, just trying to make it in the music business. And so playing with the Knack guys, was it was really great. And we had a really great time but that's when towards the end of that that's when mr big kind of got together i met billy and and so i had to tell the knack guys about it and i said look i love you guys but i i got an opportunity to play with uh this other situation and i'm gonna, I'm gonna go do it and but and they were cool but you know it was it was hard because we were friends hmm. What 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 exactly led to the Mr. Big thing? You said you met Billy. Well, what ended up happening is Brett Tuggle, this keyboard player that I did with um, Belinda Carlisle, mm-hmm. that I did the tour with her, he ended up auditioning for David Lee Roth Band to be the touring keyboard background singer vocalist guy, you know? Mm-hmm. And, he, and he got that gig. So... What what ended up happening is they did their second, they did the, what was the first one, Eat em and Smile. Then yeah. they did Skyscraper. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know Billy from Adam. I, I'd read about Billy. Billy was a rock star. You know, I mean, I was like, wow, Billy Sheehan, man, who is mm-hmm. this guy? Yeah. 
And this was even before he joined David Lee Roth. I remember reading articles about him from Talis. And um, so Brett, we they they wanted to do some background vocal samples for the tour for Skyscraper. So Brett Tuggle asked me, because I would do background vocal sessions sometimes, he asked oh, cool. me yeah. and this other guy named Dave Amato, who plays guitar with Ario Speedwagon now, uh, who we've been friends for 35 years. And Dave Amato and Billy came in to, as well. So on this background vocal session, we would just sing backgrounds. And I, that's when I met Billy. And I, I was starstruck. I was like, wow, Billy Sheehan, this is great. And he was really cool. We got on really well. And really cool to meet him and uh so after that billy left the david lee roth band and about six months went by and brett asked billy what he's going to do and and brett uh, billy said he was going to probably start a band and so brett said well if you're looking for a drummer remember that guy pat yeah that was on the vocal session he used to check him out he's a good drummer and he can sing and he's a good guy so Billy called me, and at the NAMM show in 1988, we uh, I went to the NAMM show out here, and uh, that's when I met Billy again and gave him my number. and And I and I was kind of in the in the mind of uh, he's never going to call me, but at least you know I got to meet him and right. hang with him, and you know it was cool. Well, he did call, and so that was and it was about. This was in January, so it was around March or April. Billy called me, and we got together and kind of hung out. He, he invited me over to his apartment and just kind of hang and just to see. He wanted to kind of, kind of a loose interview, just to see what kind of thing I was into, what kind of person I was, and if if we could, you know, have anything in common. And we had a lot in common. And so, a couple months later, he called me again, and he'd already gotten Paul and uh, Eric together and then we got in a room and jammed and 10 minutes later they asked me to join so that nice. it was pretty pretty easy I mean easy in in a in a uh, a long circuitous route but it was it wasn't uh, any it wasn't any pulling teeth or big auditions or anything they that was it, it it's so hard to kind of predict how things are going to kind of come about there's no formula you know it's i mean you can mm -hmm. all you can do is be prepared for when those opportunities present themselves yeah that's right that's right i think the other thing that i find interesting is that there was billy wanted to sit down and and just meet you and you know because there's there's that element again that you did, you brought up before about you just got to be a good person you've got to be able to to hang and and uh, get along uh, because there's a lot, lot more to it than just playing, in many ways. Yeah, there's a lot of guys that can cover the gig, play it, but not you know it's this this it's the hang is everything. <laughs> most of the time, you are just hanging, <laughs> and you got you got to be able to get get on and be cool. So where do you go to find a treasure trove of information about vintage drums, custom drums, and legendary drummers? NotSoModernDrummer.com Since 1988, NotSoModernDrummer is an institution dedicated to researching and documenting the history of modern drums, the art of drum building, and the legendary drummers who play them. The writers and contributors are some of the top vintage and custom drum experts from around the world. 
Not So Modern Drummer serves as an online gathering place and marketplace for the worldwide community of drummers who buy and sell, collect, preserve, and play these instruments. It also hosts drum-related events that are attended by drummers from all over the world. This website is easy and fun to explore, and the monthly digital magazine subscription is free. So check out NotSoModernDrummer.com. The band finalized uh, in the springtime of 88. Mm-hmm. So we started real quickly. We Within two weeks, we were recording demos and putting songs together. And so over that summer, we were just rehearsing and coming up with material and just waiting. You know, our management, which was Herbie Herbert Management out in San Francisco, they, he managed Journey. So he had a you know he had a really good connection and we knew it was going to happen we were going to get a deal they were working on it and well then by the end of the summer October we were just hanging in L.A. waiting for the particulars of when we were going to record in fact we knew we were going to record but we weren't going to start recording till January which at the time it seemed like forever you know it's like we've been working for three or four months it's like let's get in the studio we you know we're chomping at the bit we want to get going but yeah it was like oh we gotta wait till january and um it all seems so silly now but at the time it was like devastating oh we gotta wait so long you know it's like terrible (laughs) and um then so i remember it was uh the beginning of october and uh i got a phone call uh from our manager on a saturday morning Saying Pat, you got to go to Chicago today. Robert Plant's drummer broke his wrist. You got to go, and you go. And I, and I got the message. You know, in other words, it was early in the morning. The phone rang, and I just let the machine pick up and yeah. listen. And then he said that, and I was like, he hung up. He said, "Call me back." <laughs> He's like, "I'm up," and I was stunned. <laughs> yeah, I'm stunned. I'm like thinking, did he say Robert Plant or Robert Palmer? Yeah. I and I'm saying, I was like blown away so i called him up and sure enough he's he said yeah robert plant needs a drummer bill curbishly his manager is going to call you in about 10 minutes and and uh you know just just tell him i told him you could do it you know and because i was like herbie i can't i don't know what am i going to do i'm I'm scared you know he goes no you could do it you'll be great don't you know don't don't he's a real kind of a forceful you know belligerent crazy manager and he was like no get out don't be silly you could get out i i know you can do it don't even worry about it I, I just go there take care of it you know he was like he was like yeah, that's crazy it's good i know you can play it yeah and uh but i was i was shaking out of my boots you know i was like oh my god what you know and then of course the other side the other side of my angel devil goes comes in and says don't worry you're not going to get the gig just just at least maybe you might be able to get to meet him you know right. just just calm down you know so, yeah uh, I this was a Saturday, and so um, I jumped on a plane on Sunday morning and uh, flew to Chicago and went right from the airport into rehearsal. Oh, wow! And with Robert wasn't there at the time, and but the band guys were, and so Chris Blackwell, who was the drummer, he had a cast on his hand, oh. and he's left-handed, so he's got his kit set up left-handed. So we had to like move everything and change and you know he's got a big tama cage with uh, you know stuff <laughs> so we were able to put together just kind of a four-piece kit which works for me fine right and uh so within we just played a couple things and then robert came in and 
I just remember hearing somebody say my name from behind me, saying Patrick, and I turned around and it was Robert Plant, and I was doing my best not to get all squirrely and, right. you know, squirrely and groovied out. You know, I was just kind of trying to maintain. And uh, they, he just said, well, let's, let's just jam. Uh, let's jam on some blues. So we started doing some just a slow 6-8 blues thing, and I just kind of tried to do my best John Bonham imitation and, so we got done, and then he said, well, give us a minute. to. Can you give us a few minutes to talk? And I said, yeah, sure. So I left the room, and then they, within about two minutes, they called me back in. They said, okay, you sound great. You got the gig. Oh, wow. <laughs> I was like, wow, okay. Yeah. And inside my head, fireworks are going off. But <laughs> I was trying, you know, just to go, okay, that's cool. Great. Glad to be a part of it, you know. Right, right. I, was, <laughs> I couldn't, I, I, I just couldn't believe it. All of a sudden, I'm in Robert Plant's band. I Holy mean, cow! It blew my mind. It was, it was a crazy, crazy time. How how long did that last? We uh, did about nine and a half weeks of mm-hmm. shows. So it started in the first part of October, and then went into mid December, and then we were done. But it was fantastic. He, you know, it was the first tour that he started doing Zeppelin again. So I was really okay. excited about that. Yeah. yeah. Do you remember some of the Zeppelin tunes you were playing? Of course. Uh, <laughs> did nobody's fault but mine. Trampled underfoot. Communication breakdown. Um, stuff. Well, there's other ones. What they did kind of medleys. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Some medleys. And there was something else I'm forgetting. Did about four or five, and he had you know now and then was kind of a big album for him as well. It was right, doing pretty well. That. So uh-huh. so there was a there was a lot of a lot of material. Tall cool one. And yeah, ship of fools. Love that song. That's great. Yeah, ship of fools. I love playing it live. It was really fun. Man, really great. that's amazing. I love that dude. Um, and probably all that time growing up listening and you know that la- having having to come in last minute you're like well i kind of already know some of this stuff <laughs> well i knew the zeppelin stuff yeah i mean right. obviously the, it was it was all a, a challenge but the zeppelin stuff but the, a lot of his solo stuff i wasn't as familiar with that was the challenge you uh-huh. know, i was like trying to get in and i had this was on a Sunday I auditioned. And then, so the, the following show, the next show was on a Thursday. So we had Monday and Tuesday to rehearse and then they had to break the equipment down and, and truck it to where we had to go. So I had like these two days to learn this two hour plus headlining show. And I was like, Oh my God, I didn't sleep. I I was just, you know, me and a Walkman and that was it. (laughs) Fast forwarding and rewinding. Yeah. No jumping around MP3s, man. No, I wish. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was old school. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Um, I'm going to text uh, David and have him give us a call. Okay. Hey, David. Hey, brother, what's going on? I'm going to see if I can merge you with this call. I think I can. I'll press this button. Hey, Pat, are you there? I'm here. Uh, cool. Here's David. He's here as well. Hey, Pat. There you are. I recognize you. Yeah, man. 
So, David, uh, we've covered some history and uh, his time in L.A. and stuff leading up to Mr. Big, including the uh, we just discussed some of the stuff with the Now and Zen tour working with Robert Plant. But uh, that's kind of where we're at, man. So, uh, any any ideas, man? Any anything you want to interject? I I am I'm open. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, for me, with with Pat, it's always been, you know, like I like I said the other day, that everybody loves John Bonham, everybody loves Neil Peart, everybody loves Buddy Rich, everybody has those common denominators of, of the mass core drummers that your grandmother knows about that everybody knows about you know you know you, somebody asked me a question one time like who do you really like who, who's, who's your guy that's really influenced you and really formed the way you play and my answer has always been pat torpy and it's it's been like you, know, <laughs> you, you blow like, my like, mind like a john <laughs> bonham what's that I said that blows my mind. I mean, you, uh, I mean, I'm well, really, really thankful. But I, I thank you so much. But I'm just really. There's got to be other guys out there. Come on. <laughs> oh yeah, there's a bunch of other guys. But you know what? What really formed my drumming and, and the, your fluidity on your fills and the the um, for me it was you had Jeff Carl's chops and John Bonham's backbeat mean groove. Oh, that's, and the, the fluidity between some of your fills. Um, I can honestly say that I steal or try <laughs> to <laughs> cop and steal some of those fills. Yeah. Uh, I fail horribly, and a lot of them are car wrecks. But, you know, even Matt, Matt said the other day, he said, he's seen you open up for Rush. And he was like, oh, who's this guy? And he's like, I feel like I'm cheating on Neil. <laughs> 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 it was the fluid and, and fluidity, man. Fluidity that that word was used again. We talked about that. I mean, yeah, I mean, on, if I had to choose one word, if I had to choose one word, it would be fluid. It yeah. it looks natural, and you were born to do that. And it like, it, I don't know. There's just just a flow to it that that you're like, ah, oh, that's what I've been trying to do all my life, and I want that. I want that natural feel that you look and hear and feel when you're playing and you know i mean me and along with 20 million other drummers when the song take cover came out we're like oh what are you doing and <laughs> yeah how many how many you know front of house guys and band guys about pissed off during sound check trying to play that <laughs> <laughs> like i'm gonna i'm gonna take this time of the day to try to play this groove and you know like everything from take cover to temperamental to uh colorado bulldog i mean those those top three right there just off the top of my head i could sit here and go down addicted to that rush and everything else but those songs right there you have these very signature grooves you know what i'm talking about when those when you go up and down the toms you lead down with your right one and you lead left back upwards yeah um, i know what you're talking about can uh one or both of you describe uh, this this kind of kick and floor tom pattern that's on take cover to maybe someone who doesn't know it and kind of the what's what's the seed what what happened uh, how did that come about well take cover First off, it's just a it's just a linear pattern. Yeah. And if everyone, I think every drummers know what I mean when I say that. And uh, with 
the hi hat doing some things, kind of just kind of being as percussional accompaniment mm-hmm. uh, with it. Right. But it's a it's a linear pattern between the kick, snare, and r- right hand on the floor tom. Mm-hmm. And I and I don't know by rote. I couldn't give you the sticking, but it you know it starts off with a kick and ends up going to this kind of pattern that you can only kind of. I, I couldn't just say, well, it's kick, left, left, right, right, left, left, gotcha. right, 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 left, left. You know, yeah, <laughs> I don't yeah, know yeah. what it is. <laughs> I've written it down many times. Yeah. But um, what, what it actually, I, and Dave and I talked about this, it came, it's from a, a Paul Gilbert idea. And he was listening on the radio to that Desiree song, um, You Gotta Be Done, You Gotta Be Done, oh, yeah. you know, and for some reason it inspired this this kind of groove with Paul and he and I you know he showed me what he was thinking and then I sat by on the kid and we just kind of worked it out and then I ended up at the time I was trying to get my heel toe splash technique and my hi hat uh down I was working on that that heel toe thing so I would um do uh, eighth notes in the verse, and then to a heel heel toe splash on the, on the beats in the choruses. So that was that was the challenge as far as you know the linear pattern. Once I got it down, I could do it for you know over and over and over and over and over and over again. Yeah. It's just muscle memory. The fact that if I was working on something, I'd try to put it in a song because then it forces me to have to do it in right. front of an audience. So right. it's kind of like you get thrown in the pool, you got to swim. So. That was that was my philosophy, but that that's basically um, that that was it. You know, it was just now. Am I am I wrong to say that 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 uh, middle section where it's just a drum break breakdown on the on the kit uh, with the the ride pattern is that is that the same pattern on it is on your ride to the floor? Exactly the same. It's exactly. I have to think to to play it properly. I have to think about that ride pattern to separate uh, what it is. Like I have to envision that in my head to play it on the floor, Tom. And it's it's a uh, it's a workout. I mean, it really is. And it's not just playing the notes. You're playing. You know, to me, it's about again. I hate to go back to it, but the fluidity of it, it. It goes back to that. You have to have that. The soul part of it, or it doesn't it doesn't fly. There's a dynamic that are that are really important, and uh, in fact, Matt, when Matt plays it live, there's been many a times when I said, "Okay, this this stroke on your right hand, you got to make this a little bit more uh, what's the word louder, for lack of a better mm-hmm. word. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like otherwise the thing kind of falls apart if the dynamics aren't right about it. It doesn't sound right. It just sounds like a mess. So, you know, it, it, and when, when we recorded it, I, we didn't even use a click track, which I can't believe that now. <laughs> see, I mean, I see, can't believe See, it. now I just hate you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm you. I, I couldn't do it. I, I mean, I, I told you we re-recorded it for, a, for that Tribute Influences and Connections record, and I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it 10 years later. I was like, how did I do this? Wow, wow. Uh, but I remember woodshedding 
at you know just behind the kit by myself and playing that pattern i would go for 20 minutes just without nonstop because you kind of got to get that into your head because it doesn't it doesn't vary from that pattern and one of the big challenges is 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 not going somewhere else because you know the drummer you know that's what you do you you go to the chorus you go to the, yeah, the verse yeah. you do a little change you do a little fill you do a little this put a little symbol here so it that the challenge was is just to have that discipline of doing the same thing for four minutes without you know changing it except to go to the yeah. bell for four three bars or four bars yeah there's even like a cartoon i'm sure you've seen it it's a it's a cartoon of this guy just tearing the hell out of his drum kit like really discouraged and it says how the hell does pet torpy play that take cover drum groove and then the next scene <laughs> is 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 you it's a cartoon of you and it has like you with like eight limbs <laughs> have you seen that no i wasn't even aware i'll, of I'll text it to you when we're off here you'll, that's you'll awesome get a kick out of it. that's awesome <laughs> that blows my in, you know, it, that's kind of like part of mastering, and I, I bet bet that time studying Latin and stuff like that helped. Like, you create these four-way patterns, and then once you master it and it gets in your DNA, then your brain has room left over to think, okay, how do I make this groove? Or how do I stay relaxed and in front of a, an audience? And, you know, because, man, there's a great live uh, video of you playing that, and you're, you're kind of looking over at at uh, Paul and Paul's, you know, right next to you, and you guys are like, "This, this is, this is happening." It's really great. Oh, that's cool. Um, hey, David, could you talk a little bit, yes, a, a little bit about um, the Nashville Drummer Jam? Uh, maybe just give a, a brief history and what's coming up, and uh, and 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 Pat's involvement here, and uh, all that good stuff. Well, uh, a brief history would be we. Uh, Tom Hurst and I started this back in 2012, I think. And the first two were from Jerry Gaskell uh, when he had his heart attack, and then not too long after that, he had a uh, he had his, lost his house in a hurricane, and then uh, then it just started spawning. We started doing other drummers from Bonham, Picaro, Peart, Copeland. I'm going through them in my head right now. Uh, Alex, uh, Phil Collins. Nine was Steve Smith mm-hmm. and then Clyde Stubblefield. It's always a charity. We always take all the proceeds and give it to somebody. And since artists have been involved lately with it, the last four or five actually, we've been giving them the choice to make them feel more involved on on um on who we're giving the money to. So uh yeah, we give it all the money to a charity and it's been growing. We've switched venues three times. And every time we have a, a challenge on who we're going to pay tribute to, and I've been wanting to do one selfishly for my own reasons, for Pat, for uh, a while now. And it just seemed like the right time. It just seemed like this was going to be, you know, Pat and I met, what was that, back in um, a couple of months ago in Nashville, I guess. And uh, I don't know. And it just, it just, it just seemed like it was like the right time to, to, cross that line and go go ahead and call this one uh pat torby tribute and and uh it it just felt right and and pat you know open arms said yeah i'm on board let's do this so it i don't know it i just i just feel like it's the right time and it felt like um it just felt like the right time 
yeah. yeah. Well, this is great. And and um, the date of that uh, was it December De- December fourth. December 4th. at the Canary Ballroom. Mm-hmm. Tickets are ten dollars. Uh, there's a lot of surprises and things going to be happening at the at the show. Uh, Pat is coming, and he's yeah. going to be there and participating. And uh, uh, we got some surprises in store. Um, I believe Billy Sheehan is coming to play bass. Is that correct? That is correct. Oh, well, and uh, uh, lots of Mr. Big music. Lots of great drummers. We got Ray Luzier from Corn. Um, Ed Toth from the Doobie Brothers. Uh, who else we got? Uh, we just it's going to be a lot, of, a lot of fun, a lot of great drumming, a uh, lot of, lot of hugs going on, and raising money for uh, the Wounded Warriors Project, which is who uh, Pat chose. Okay, awesome, uh, Pat. These are amazing, man. Um, you're going to love it. Uh, like David says, it's just a you know how drummers are, man. They, there's a strong bond and a and a great community that's that's always prevalent when you put a bunch of uh, like-minded people who just love music and, and drumming, and it's it's always been great. David's always done such a great job, and uh, we're honored to be a part of it uh, in whatever capacity uh, we're able to do. And uh, uh, it's going to be great, man. Well, it's, 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 a, it's amazing to be involved. And when I met Dave, he... Uh, we hit it off really well, and like, I'm still amazed that that he wants to do this for me. But I'm also grateful, and and it's kind of uh, makes me feel pretty humble. But um, I'm looking forward to meeting everybody. It's gonna be great. It's gonna be great, uh, David. Unless there's anything else, man, I I, I might kick you off here. Uh, I got a couple. Oh, that's totally we've, fine. We've been going for gotta, a little while here, and and I I want to cover some quick things with with Pat. Um, yeah, unless ahead, you have things. anything. Um, no, I'm just really looking forward to the show. I'm looking forward to that night and that whole weekend. Uh, the rehearsals are the fun part, and you know that's that's going to be a, a lot of a lot of fun. And uh, also, uh, if anybody that wants to play the National Drummers Jam, we get requests every year, and we we can only take so many because it can be a four day show. Uh, if anybody wants to play. We're, we're picking a song from the Mr. Big catalog, in which this one is going to be The Whole World is Going to Know. Uh-huh. they got to be 18 and older. Email letmeplaynDJ at gmail.com and email us your name, buy a ticket, come to the show, and in the middle of the show, we'll draw names. In fact, we're going to have Pat draw names. He don't, I'm already putting him to work. He didn't know it. Uh, <laughs> we're going to have him draw a name and the contest winner come up and play the whole world is going to know uh that night that's awesome so we, we we don't have room enough for everybody every time so we we want to give everybody a fair shot at getting up and playing and um hopefully that guy's looking to make connections with somebody's going to get the get the name drawn yeah you yeah. know and get up and show us stuff so what a great idea awesome. well matt thank you man uh pat thank you and uh you're welcome i'll uh Talk to you guys soon. All right. Shout out to you later, man. All right. Take care, Dave. See you, David. All right. See you, bro. Bye-bye. Back in 2014, you were diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. There was a tour 
2014-2015 for the album uh, The Stories We Could Tell. Did you play on that tour, or was that... What happened with that? Well, we we added a guy to... to, uh, We added a spare, fresh horse to come in and take care of some of the load. Mm -hmm. A guy named Matt Starr, a great guy, great drummer, good friend. And um, I played on some of the songs. Matt Matt did most of the songs and then I actually played percussion and I have a a cocktail kit that I can stand and play along with some of the songs. Did some tambourine, played some cowbell, did you know different things. But I was involved in the whole show because one thing we have in Mr. Big is our vocals and when we all sing back on vocals and it's kind of a become kind of an integral part of our sound. Right. And so I was there singing the whole thing, and it's kind of been the way we've been doing the shows lately now. So I see. Matt is Matt is the uh, my, our saving grace, and come in and like I said, he helps me out when I need it, and uh, he's a he's a good guy. That's he's awesome. A good drummer. Yeah. Good person. Uh, in the recording in the studio of, of the the most recent record, Defying Gravity, um, what was that process like? Well, Matt did Matt did the lion's share of everything. I I played on a, I know I I can't really say that I played on any whole song, but I did play some drums on some things that were used. But Matt did most of it, mm-hmm. and. We were under the gun time-wise, so that was part of the reason why, because we originally thought, you know, I, I thought maybe I could bring in some pads and play some patterns on some electronic things and then have it manipulated. But we were under a time crunch, so we, we had basically six, seven days to go in and track 12 songs. And mm-hmm. so I, I kind of became the the drum producer, Matt and I would discuss things and he would uh, go out and play. And then I would come out and kind of, we'd talk about it. And I'd make some suggestions and it wasn't like a, wasn't like you're under the microscope kind of a thing. It was more like a collaboration. So yeah, it worked out well, Matt, Matt, Matt's really quick in the studio. He, he makes, you know, quick changes. As you know, when you're in the studio and drum wise, you got to be able to think on your feet and make the changes that need to be made as far as kick patterns or, you know, arrangements and so on and so right. forth. And Matt's, Matt's really good at that. So it, it overall it was a really good experience and it was uh, a new experience, but it was fun and it was good. So I was going to say, kind of how we did it. Uh, Matt has a, a short video. He talks about the, the process and he, he says, it's like, you have two drummer brains going on, you know, and there was this kind of this new element uh, that was that was good. That was that was helpful to have you in the listening in the control room and say, hey, let's try this. Let's try that. Just kind of having this force um, happening to to create the right parts for the album. Yeah. And it also has to, you know, it, it, it's a testament to the people because, you know, Matt, Matt, you know, any anybody, you know, sometimes you take suggestions. I know I've known drummers that don't, they don't want to have anybody tell them anything. And, yeah. you know, <laughs> not just drummers. I, I should say drummers, guitar players, bass players, keyboard players. But um, our relationship is so good that, you know, it wasn't never, you know, it was really free and easy and, and easy to be productive and keep things moving. And 
it's like I said, it's a testament to the people involved. Right. Right. I mean, and, and I think that I think people that spend a lot of time in the studio that that again, the personality is another element to be able to just be open to ideas and and, and work within a um, ever changing environment and be able to adapt. Mm-hmm. It's important. From what I understand that, you know, you, you knew that something was going on, but it wasn't until the, an official diagnosis that um, you made an announcement uh, about it. it. Has it given you a, a, a new, like an epiphany to look back and to, to reflect on, on what, what you've done with your career? There's so many times that we... We don't stop and reflect. We don't take the time to put things in the proper order of what's important in our life until something changes significantly for us. Well, it's it's you know obviously it's it's a real earthquake, and and mm-hmm. when it when you first realize you know things are changing, and uh, it's not like um, you know I mean I always you, you know drumming is a physical. Thing anyway, so as you get older, you you lose some of it. It's like being a you know professional athlete, and eventually time is going to win. <laughs> you know, time time beats you up, and it's it's it wins every time. Yeah, and um, and so I had to go. I went through some changes. You know, mentally, I had to went through part the time when I was really depressed about it, and had to deal with that as well. But luckily, I'm surrounded by people who care and show me, you know, compassion and help me get through it, especially my wife, who's like I, I've said it many times, she's my guardian angel. She's mm-hmm. saved me in so many ways. And then you just got to accept it and find another way. And I'm, I'm just grateful we still be able to be out there making music and being involved. And once again, it, it, it's a, it shows the quality of people you're involved with because they always wanted me to be there. And you know, it's not. I don't. I, I didn't have to drag and click and, and claw my way. You know, by the skin of my teeth, back in. You know, or anything. They they wanted me there, and they still do. And and uh, it gives me reason to get out of bed in the morning, which is yeah, which is really great. So it's a testament to that that friendship and that bond. That's that. It sounds like it was it was there from the beginning. I mean, I, I there, we had a conversation with the band when I was first diagnosed. I, I just told him, I said, "Look, you know, you guys just get another guy," and I, you know, I understand. I mean, it's it's just uh, it's life. This is things happen, and I, I you know, it was it was a sad, heartbreaking thing. But uh, to my surprise, they came back. Well, we want you to be involved. We gotta have, you know, let's find, let's find a way. Let's let's, you know, what can you do? What can't you do? Show us, mm-hmm. and let's try to make it work so right it gave me a good incentive and reason to say oh okay well let's see what i can do and yeah that's kind of been been my approach yeah there's there's going to be so many opportunities for people to draw inspiration from your story and from this whole thing uh in many ways um and so i i'm i'm hoping that uh, more people uh, get to know more about what's going on and and uh, you know what the band is doing and and it's just it's really great, man. It's um, 
and I'm excited to have you in Nashville and, and to be able to meet face to face for sure as well. Yeah, it'll be great. Yeah, it'll be great. Uh, and the, the and our shows, the people at our shows, I was just going to say, the fans yeah. have been super supportive, and you know, it's been fantastic all, all over the world. You know, because we just came from Southeast Asia, and people are, you know, so supportive of me, and they, you know, they just lift me up. You know, it's it's really been great, and I really think I have a lot of thankful thoughts for all our fans out there. I remember years ago seeing somebody sent me you soloing and singing yesterday and I'm watching Oh yeah. <laughs> I'm watching the solo and all of a sudden you both and I'm like, What is going on? What is going on here? <laughs> That's exactly the effect I was going for. Okay. <laughs> I was you know What the hell is he doing? No, I was just like I at first I'm like, What this is I've never seen anything like this. What was the, what was the kind of, where did you come up with that? Well, what ended up happening, um, I, we, we got real popular in Japan, uh, in that early, whatever year it was, 91, Mm -hmm. 92, all of a sudden Japan just really took off and they have a magazine over there called burn magazine. It's like a big rock magazine. It's the number one rock magazine. And, and they have these yearly polls that they come out with. And we won everything. We won best bass, best guitar, best band, best live, best artwork, best single, best album. You know, I mean, we just won every category except one best drummer. I didn't win. I was number two. <laughs> so I remember thinking, you know, going in and talking to the guys, and they were like, hey, wow, look, look at the burn pole. We won everything. And and I said, yeah, except best drummer. And they were like, well, that's cool. You know, and Terry Bozio was number one. Yeah. So I remember thinking, God, it kind of bugged me, you know. I mean, it shouldn't be the reason for changing your life a poll doesn't really mean a lot it's just a snapshot but yeah. at the time it just really bugged me and i yeah. thought what do you got to do to get noticed i mean i mean I, I was grateful enough to be number two because you know the guys in the top 10 are you know everybody from bozio to john bonham to you know lars ulrich you know all these guys that that are popular and some great drummers some not but they're they're big names yeah so I thought, for some reason, I, I just kind of got the idea. You got to do something like let your hair on fire. You got to do some something that makes you stand out, that makes people puts a smile on their face and go and something, something. What can you do? And I came up with this idea of singing of yesterday while I played kind of an unrelated reform solo thing underneath it. And uh, that's kind of where it came. And so that year we toured. The next year, the the drum, the Burn Magazine poll comes out, and I won number one, and Terry Bozio was number two. And that's kind of the punchline of the story. It actually worked. So, uh, you know, Jimi Hendrix lit his guitar on fire. I didn't want to light my hair on fire, so I came up with this idea of singing along with the yes. And I thought it's got to be kind of, like you said, what the heck's going on? It's got to be a song that 
So I thought, what's the most popular song in in the world? And that's mm-hmm. Yesterday. You know, it's, it's been re-recorded in many times. So it's just my wild, crazy idea of trying to get noticed in a band with Billy and Paul. Right. <laughs> well, it worked, man. It, it definitely worked. And Basio was probably like, well, I can't sing. Um, I'll just add 26 more toms to the left side of my key. Yeah, and, and, and 30 cymbals. <laughs> Take that, Pat Torby. <laughs> yeah, that'll get it. I'll show you. I get the biggest drum kit in the world. <laughs> I, I, I love the just the, the juxtaposition of this, like crazy you know fast hands underneath a ballad it's i think that's what that's what made my brain you know hit the reset (laughs) well there was you know in in there is an anchor there is a thing in there that that i anchor to and that's my right foot Hmm. um it's the right foot is just i'm playing triplets Uh uh you know between the kick drums and the right foot is it's like a single kick with two triplets on the left. Gotcha. You know, you know that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so that right foot, it's like that's where I can anchor, even though my hands are kind of flying around. I'm doing other things or whatever. Yeah. yeah. The right foot, I keep it in mind as to, you know, it, it was a bit of a challenge, but you know, and the first time I did it, I didn't even tell the guys in the band I was going to do it. I just told the sound man that keep my vocal mic up because I'm going to sing. Yeah. And uh, they they all <laughs> were standing on the side of the stage going, what the heck is going on? <laughs> they they had the same reaction. and uh, But the crowds really reacted to it. it. It turned into this whole thing in Japan. It's it's really cool. You you can hear the foundation, and 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 I love the phrasing. You, you sing a line, and then you're expecting the next line, and then you kind of like almost like a Johnny Cash thing. You kind of like pause. You're doing some other things, and you before you come back in for the next line. So, you know, not having this this harmonic structure beneath you gives you that freedom. Yeah, well, and it's also a bit of desperation, you know, I'm desperately holding on, trying to keep it together, so I'm like, okay, okay, all right, let's, next line, you know? (laughs) I I just, I don't understand how, like, you're not sounding out of, more out of breath, or out of breath at all, you know, with that. Uh, Yeah, that that was the challenge, is is keeping, you know, your breathing, that that you're, you're, it's interesting you pick up on that, because... There was a challenge, uh, you know, because it takes a lot of air to sing and it takes a lot of air to play drums, and you got to keep it all together. And I, I, at that time, I was probably in the best shape of my life those years. So, (laughs) I mean, you know, I I was an avid runner and bike rider, and I would ride miles and, you know, just keep the stamina way up. Uh huh. I think the only thing that I ever did that draw any atten- drew any attention on a drum solo was uh, somebody said drum solo, and I stepped out from behind the kit and came up front and told the story of how I lost my virginity. And that was it. <laughs> now that's a drum solo. <laughs> <laughs> um, Pat, I'm super excited to meet you. Uh, December 4th, Nashville Drummer Jam. 
Um, and uh, I thank you, our listeners, thank you for taking time to, to do this. You're welcome. And um, very welcome. I was glad to do it. Yeah. Uh, is uh, do you know is John Zacco going back out with you guys on this European thing or? Yeah, he's gonna be he's gonna be with us. Awesome. We leave tomorrow for Germany, and uh, he's gonna be there. He's a great guy to have around. Yeah. Funny. Well, maybe um, he's a Yankee fan, and I'm a, I'm a baseball fan. So, well, the Yankees just got eliminated, but um, I think he's so a big. He and I talk baseball sometimes. He's a big Donald Trump fan too, so you can buy him a hat. He'd love that. <laughs> Hey, make America great. <laughs> Come make on, John. Something great again. <laughs> <laughs> Pat, again, thank you so much for your time today, and um, and uh, looking forward to seeing you again. All right, great talking to you, Matt. Yeah. And uh, you know, let's, let's hook up when we when I get to Nashville. Sounds great. All right. Be well, man. Talk to you soon. You too. Take care. Bye. Bye. So my thanks goes out to David Parks for once again connecting me uh, with another great player, including Pat, and um, uh, that was fun to have him come in and and talk to Pat and bring up some uh, thoughts on Mr. Big and how it's influenced him. Uh, David's been instrumental in putting together the Nashville Drummer Jam that has included uh, many great artists and has allowed this podcast to uh, reach other Uh, artists like Steve Smith. So uh, my thanks goes to David for that. And uh, also, of course, to Pat for taking the time to speak with us and share his story. Uh, I was always a fan of his uh, going way back, like I said, to around 1992 when I saw him uh, with Mr. Big open up for Rush. He's an incredible uh, player, incredible dude, and I'm looking forward to meeting him. And if you're close to Nashville on December 4th, please come out and visit us. Uh, My thanks to Mike Jackson as well for his technical assistance. Stay tuned next week for Zach Albetta's episode. And uh, we have t-shirts for sale at workingdrummer.net. These uh, help support what we're doing here. Also, patreon.com slash workingdrummer is also a way that you can support what we're doing. Donations start out at a dollar. As always, uh, my thanks goes to you, the listener, and for uh, all those who have reached out to us. Uh, over the last few years. And if you are in town uh, for this Nashville Drummer Jam on December 4th and you see me there, please come up and say hello. Uh, I may not recognize everybody, but but uh, please just come up and say hello. And I hope to see you all there. Bye-bye. <laughs>